Welcome to the Natural History Cupboard. Come on in. And welcome back to the Natural History Cupboard podcast, the place where the wonderful and weird parts of the natural world come together. I'm your host, Gareth, and with me as always are my co-hosts, Drew. Say hi. Hello. You mixed, um, you changed weird and wonderful there. Did and, I? Uh, yeah. Oh, well, I mean... Yeah, it was weirdly weird, wonderful. Weird yeah, it doesn't necessarily come before wonderful, and wonderful doesn't necessarily become before weird, so... It's just the first time you've done it. It really, it really threw me off my game. <laughs> well... <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's now thrown me off my game yeah. um so uh Expect and also unexpected here <laughs> and my other co-host aaron say hi oh hi oh hi now that no you can't start doing that <laughs> but to be fair i didn't do mine Stop I it. no that's yes yeah, yeah. that's not right right well what have you two been up to this week then <laughs> come to the beach a lot i saw a road here the other day yeah yeah that's cool. he was excuse the expression but he was up your lane aaron <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I, I've seen tracks around. Again, oh, yeah. saw some tracks around tonight. In fact, we—I don't want to use the word chased because we didn't actually chase him. We were like we're in the car. You ran him we, over, didn't you? It's just that he—he <laughs> he decided not to jump into any of the verges that were freely open to him and decide keep running down the road. He was running towards your house. Oh well, uh, but yeah, he was very handsome. I had a rather wildlife-packed week actually. Oh yeah, not to brag. I uh, went to Dartmoor Zoo. Um, haven't yeah. been there in quite That's a while. See, <laughs> see that they've done quite a bit of improvements on some of their things. Didn't see there. They were supposed to have a Himalayan monol. Didn't see that. Oh. But uh, do you know what? I, I, I quite like seeing things like that. Uh, saved a baby wood pigeon from a cat and uh, got it back up into its nest with a rake of all things. Yeah. Stepped onto the rake, lifted it up into the tree. Did stepped you do off a the rake. Oh. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> Wrong kind of rake as well. <laughs> that's that's been my week. I, I've, I've been quite happy with the amount of wildlife interaction I've had. Uh, I actually I watched Jurassic World Dominion finally. Mm. I wouldn't exactly th- say that's wildlife interaction, but that's fair enough. No, but, no, no, but you asked us about it? a week ago. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I watched Thor. Uh, I haven't seen that. That's actually oddly relevant for today's episode. Yes, it, oh, yeah, good. it is actually. To be fair. Right, well, before we start things off this week, we're going to try something out. We've had a redesign in the cupboard. It's looking it's lovely and clean and, <laughs> and new in here. We've had a bit of a, a tidy around. We've moved those bits from over there to over there. Um, and yeah, that, there's that no thing need, in the, but we just did. It looked, it's the feng shui. It works. But we are going to try our new format, as it were, for you listeners. We are going to bring to you our combined creature feature. We are enhancing our creature feature mm. with various other bits and pieces from our segments and going full steam with our, our new uh, new version of the cupboard. And the cupboard seeing, 2.0. Seeing where this takes us. So it's not too radical, but we're going to jump right. into our news as per usual. And then we will jump into our enhanced creature feature. Yes. So uh, let's get into the news, shall we? Right, well, we're into this week's news, and Drew is going to start things off by telling us about some small mammals. Yeah, well, small 
biggish small mammals. Um, biggish small mammals, yeah. Biggish small. Oh, it's very exciting news. Really very exciting news. So this has come from the BBC. It's titled Pine Martin Project for Dartmoor and Exmoor. Oh, I like Pine Martins. Yes. Is it what the title sounds like it's going to be talking about? You t- Well, you tell me, how would you it's read so- that? It sounds like my favourite British mustard that might be coming to an area near us. Coming yes. to a tree near you. Basically, yes. I mean, that's the article. <laughs> we could leave it at that, really, but that's essentially it. So the article says... In a world uh, where trees have small <laughs> mammals eating squirrels. Sorry. I mean, that's, that's exactly <laughs> well, why we want them. I'm, yeah, I'm sorry to derail it even further, Drew, but that's partially why I like them so much. I mean, I like them for what they are, but also I like the fact that they get rid of grey squirrels, which I love grey squirrels, but it, I, yeah. um, they get rid of grey squirrels. Don't belong around here. Then we can have our red squirrels back, and I like, my, I like our red squirrels even more. Yeah. So, yeah, so the article says that critically endangered pine martins could be reintroduced. Don't like the word could be there. They will be reintroduced, I say. Uh, to the southwest for the first time in 150 years. So conservation organisations say they hoped the nocturnal mammals could be released in autumn 2024, and they're working with both the Exmoor and Dartmoor National Park authorities to identify uh, suitable sites. As we all, uh, well, I'm sure as most of us know, the Pine Martin has been, it's been pushed out of most areas around the UK, to be honest. They've been, they've had the little uh, bastion in Scotland and Wales and they are starting to they are starting to be reintroduced but this is pretty exciting because well for Varus because Exmoor and Dartmoor are, are both so close they used to be the article says they used to be among Britain's most common mammals but they were pushed to the brink of extinction as I just said so in Victorian times they were shot for sport trapped for their fur mm. and persecuted by gamekeepers so they disappeared from the southwest in the 1880s so this project is being headlined by the National Trust, the Devon Wildlife Trust, and the Woodland Trust, um, and it's called the Two Moors Pine Martin Project. And they're now in discussion with residents, farmers, landowners, and other land users to assess the impact of the plans uh, on the environment and surrounding, surrounding businesses, and which I would say, all beneficial, but I'm not a landowner. So a study published in 2021 found that southwest England's low density of major roads, coupled with a network of woodlands and wooded valleys, often connected by river catchment areas, would provide enough habitat for pine martins to thrive. Sarah Bryan, chief executive of Exmoor National Park Authority, said, we're pleased to be looking at the possibility of making these charismatic creatures part of Exmoor's rich natural heritage once again. And Ed Parr Ferris, conservation manager with Devon Wildlife Trust, said, as communities rightly seek to plant more woodland to address carbon and climate, it is vital we also bring back the wildlife and wild processes that make these woodlands alive and functioning properly. So that's pretty much the article, really. But I think the only thing actually we probably should mention is, well, something that Aaron already mentioned anyway, is that pine martins do like to eat squirrels, and mm. they are particularly proficient at eating grey squirrels, because grey squirrels did not evolve around pine martins, and they are heavier than reds. Uh, which are and also are, their, are their nesting habits are different. Ah, uh, yeah, okay. Because their nesting habits are different. The reds have extra advantage to get away. Uh, also, they're really good, but, but partially because they're natural predators, partially because the grey squirrels have a harder time to get away from them. Mm-hmm. And wherever the pine martin is, the red squirrel tends to thrive. Um, yes. Uh, yeah, that's, which is that's fantastic. Yeah. Even though they, they will occasionally predate on a red squirrel because they are 
that is a native um, uh, natural predator. But yeah, if, they, you, if they you've got do, a big, yeah, yeah. if you've got a big but chunky it's gray, more balanced. Yeah, if you've got a big chunky gray around. You're going to well, go for yeah. that, aren't you? It's, it's, it's easier to get. Yeah. Um, for just a little bit of context, just in case any of our listeners are going to get through this, just in case any of our listeners don't know what pine martin is, if you imagine they're a member of the mustard family, so uh-huh. they're, we- they're weaselably similar to ferrets, but oh, totally God. different. Oh, right. Were you giggling it's- all up until this point, trying to, you were just holding that in <laughs> and waiting until you could do it? Well, He's been very waiting this entire time. <laughs> so I did actually have a a, a a bit of not premonition, I suppose. Uh, having seen this, what a <laughs> having having seen the very start of this um, when I went to a native species working group mm. uh, talk quite a few years ago, where they were talking about the success of pine martens in Ireland and in Wales, and how Exmoor and Dartmoor were the next step. Uh, mm. in, the, in the reintroduction plan so it's it's really good to see that it's not just been a just a, it's just a, a pipe work dream yeah 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 because yeah. the, they seem to have done really well and some of the areas where they were talking about in north wales around snowdon and that are not too far from where you know my parents live and it's just one of those things i I'd, I'd never thought that they would be in those areas but they mm. are now yeah you know, it's it, Fantastic to see. Well, they they must have lived here. <laughs> oh, God. he's been again. Just for the listeners, he's been giggling again behind the scenes. He muted mute him, himself. Would. He muted himself because he had this joke coming up. <laughs> he's been sat there giggling his his little face off, waiting for waiting to unleash these jokes. <laughs> they are a stately cool animal. Yeah, they are. <clears throat> just quickly, I wanted to end on just so well, not serious, but like. Something additionally is I have heard a lot of people ask in regards to sort of pine martins and red squirrels as well, that, or they've sort of suggested that those animals specifically need conifer forests. And I just want to say right here and now that they, they don't. Most of the UK is covered in broadleaf and should be covered in broadleaf. And we used to have pine martins and red squirrels all over it. So they don't specifically need conifer forests. So let's continue Removing those conifer plantations, please, no, and, uh, in, and more broadly. Well, it's in, funny that you in mentioned... In fact, I think we covered forest. that. So, sorry, Gareth, just, just quickly to cut in. I, it's hmm. funny that you mentioned that, because I'm pretty sure when we spoke about... I think it, a news article of mine spoke about pine martins, red squirrels, and grey squirrels. Hmm. I can't remember what the article was about now. If you make um, another squirrel joke now... No. <laughs> another weasel joke... He's going to go nuts. Yeah. <laughs> Damn, you beat me to... <laughs> It was it wasn't a joke. There was there was an article that I did, uh, I covered regarding pine mines mm. uh, in the UK. I think specifically it might have been in Ireland. But if you remember, actually conifers make it more difficult for reds to nest. Right. Yes. We should be covering <clears throat> broadleaf, and broadleaf is what they find easier naturally. Well, yeah. it's funny that you mentioned broadleaf because the article that I'm bringing to the table. This is how he gets this. Can I just mention, because my, article, my, I had another article that I was going to do this week and I decided not to, and it was also concerning squirrels. And it was that a drunk squirrel caused a thousand pounds worth of damage. <laughs> but actually, I decided not to do that article because, well, I mean, that's it. That's, that's basically the article. <laughs> there was a drunk squirrel and uh, it was kicking about a pub, I think, and it smashed a lot of bottles, got drunk smashed more bottles and then caused thousands of pounds worth of damage 
we really need to be looking at our sort of licensing laws that's allowing yeah. squirrels. It was a grey squirrel as well. I just want to say, uh, they come over here, trash our pubs, <laughs> kill our reds, get drunk, probably stole a pasty as well. Yeah, yeah. Well, anyway, like I say, to smoothly transition into uh, talk about broadleaf trees, mine is about how North Wales has got what we're going to term the Welsh Jurassic Park, or sort of. Well, actually, I mean, basically, the article is about cloning five saplings of an ancient oak tree, what was Wales's oldest oak tree, and a tree of great significance that unfortunately died in 2013 in a big storm. So this is uh, in The Guardian, although it's been in a few other things uh, as well. It's it's also featured on the North Wales Wildlife Trusts. Well, it's been cloned, uh, isn't it? It's all over the place. Well, cl- yeah, they've cloned, they've the, cloned the articles. I mean, it's ridiculous. They, they, yeah. haven't, they haven't used amphibian DNA in this, have they? They haven't, no. We're not We're not going to be expecting to see killer trees roaming <laughs> over North Wales. Oh, can you imagine tree spawn? Wait, that would be Ents, though, wouldn't it? Basically, it's Ents. Yeah, yeah. that like, would actually that would be cool. Ents I mean, storm in Isengard. Uh, I mean, next, Westminster. The next time I'm up at my parents, I will ask them if they've seen any Ents passing by. Um, yeah. to uh, to I don't know, Dump, dumping their lumps of rock or something, dumping their spawn <laughs> in into a local pond from all that amphibian DNA. Well, I was gonna say, there's a lot of frogs in my mum's garden, so you never know, might end up with a mutant oak tree in there as well anyway this is the north wales ancient felled uh, pontevadog oak uh, returning in five clone saplings they don't actually go into how much they did in, in the actual cloning process of these particular oak saplings presumably when this tree fell over in 2013 in a big storm they took some cuttings and did it that way to be honest if it's an old oak tree it's going to be producing enough acorns anyway so you know that would Mm. kind of work but i suppose it's not technically a clone at that point Mm. um but the article goes on about how on a stormy stormy night in 2013 there was a resounding crack sound echoing through the valley in northeast wales Um, when day broke the sight of um, the pontevadog oak a glorious tree that had stood over the uh, kairiog valley for over 1200 years had been toppled and lay in a heap of broken branches. So decayed wood, lichen and fungi lay among the uh, the spring flowers. It gives you a nice sort of picture of a, a felled That's tree. Some relatively good prose there, yeah. Yeah. Basically, this is tree... <laughs> uh, almost a decade later, a ceremony has taken place uh, last Wednesday at the National Botanical Gardens of Wales to mark the return of the oak in the form of five cloned saplings two of which will be planted uh, up in northeast Wales, because I might like to point out that the Botanical Garden of Wales is in South Wales, not in North Wales. Um, so as, as per usual, everything gets shipped off to the, uh, the capital of wherever. North Wales gets two of them um, close to the spot where the, the tree actually stood. So you don't even get one back where the tree stood. But uh, Chris Williams, basically his family owned the land where the tree stood. Uh, said it had graced the uh, the land for dozens of generations. When it fell, it was like uh, somebody had died in the family. We all grieve for it. Uh, and what's more, it wasn't just an oak tree sitting in a field. It was part of the family. Uh, what, what's happening now is delightful. And it feels like the circle of life continues. And the Pantav- uh, Pontevadog oak is not dead. It lives on and it continues to be relevant. 
So this tree itself has been there for, like I say, 1,200 years. So it's a, it's a pretty old tree. Well, it was Wales's oldest oak tree. Mr. Williams uh, fondly remembers playing on and around the hollowed out oak tree as a child and said he'd climb uh, inside. And he can even remember shoeing cattle that had basically got stuck in there out. So it's a pretty big tree to yeah. uh, or pretty small <clears throat> cattle. Yeah. Going for 200,000 clones already with a million more on the way. Yes, yes. It's, it's going to be a clone army of trees <laughs> in armour. And he even said a neighbour used it as an extra sheep pen. It was that big. So this was a big tree. He also said uh, that there was a tail of a bull that went missing uh, for a week and was, was found hiding in the tree, in the tree trunk. <laughs> I don't know how observant they were being as farmers at that point, to not notice that there's a bull hiding in the tree. No, also um, if their cows keep disappearing into this tree. <laughs> and another cow is, goes disappearing tree into the tree and they don't check the tree. I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm kind of sad that I've never seen this tree, actually. But legend says that there were two golden chisels discovered in it as well um, around its roots when they were, they were digging around there at some point in the form of sort of druidic mm. things, although it's, mm-hmm. it's legend in that sense. I, I do want to say legend says... A lot of things. Oh, yes. Anything well, that follows, legend says, is like, okay, here we go. When it comes to, uh, to legend as well, it's, uh, it's been said, and it was actually reiterated by Mark Drayford, the, uh, the First Minister for Wales, at the sort of ceremony that they had to, to commemorate this, when the, the planting of some of these, these new oak saplings. Uh, apparently, Owain Glendour, who, if you know who Owain Glendour is, good knowledge of history. Uh, unfortunately, he's one of these people who's been sort of forgotten by history because uh, when it comes to Welsh history, it's not really something that's not. Yeah. Uh, if you watch Horrible Histories, you should know who he is as well. Oh, yeah, for sure. <laughs> and you should watch Horrible Histories if you don't. Uh, definitely. Definitely. Yeah. Especially just because of the songs. Yeah, stupid um, But <laughs> that's true. Um, but Owen Glendour, easiest way to describe it to people, he was the Welsh William Wallace. Uh, he fought the English coming into Wales because that's what England did. They basically took over everything. You may be familiar with that if you're living in anywhere, anywhere between in the world, <laughs> anywhere in the world, because England was very good at doing that. They made that very much their thing. Hmm. Um, but Owen Glendour uh, apparently um, used this oak tree as a rallying point so uh supposedly it was it has that much significance um because it's it's very close to the english border it's a a good rallying point for fighting his guerrilla campaign just before the battle of uh of crogan which is one that wales beat the english in three nil i believe (laughs) Football, football joke there anyway but um it's uh yeah so basically this tree has been clothed they've um planted them out in a variety of different places. One of them, probably the, the nicest sort of version of, uh, of where all these have been planted. One's been planted at Chirk Castle, the other at Ethrig. Ethrig uh, is a woodland that has been created just outside of the town of Wrexham. You may be familiar with Wrexham because of the football club there, because Ryan Reynolds and, um, oh God, one of the ones from Always Sunny in Philadelphia have just yeah. bought it. So that's usually what people are familiar with Wrexham now. But the woodland is being created is actually to honour all the people who died during COVID. Um, So it's being made a sort of memorial forest and part of plans by the Welsh government to shape new national forests throughout Wales. So it's really good. So we are hopefully getting more 
broadleaf forests throughout Wales. So connecting up some of these corridors. So yeah, cool. there you go. That's a clone tree, hopefully not taking over and destroying and killing us all near you. So oh, well, uh, yeah. You said that they, um, they're not planting in its position. Can the family not put like an acorn down or... You know what? I would I would have thought that they would have done that at least in one point. And I know from just visiting parents-in-law who have an oak tree in their front garden, it's not a thousand years old, but it's still a pretty hefty sized oak tree that actually throws down seedlings all over the place. So much so that if you're cutting the grass, there's almost certainly uh, going to be an oak sapling poking its head through at some point, And we just end up digging them out and potting them up. So I would imagine they've probably got one or two on site that are direct relatives of that tree. Dead but yeah, trees. let's go from that oh, into our creature feature, shall we? It's the creature feature. Yeah, today I'm continuing my theme of super intelligent animals. If you remember the last time I did a creature feature, it was the um, blue rhin octopus. Mm. And I'm going to be talking a bit about what we at the podcast refer to as the raven in inverted commas. Oh. Uh, yeah. But what's important to get across right off the bat is that the raven in inverted commas doesn't really exist as such, or rather it doesn't really mean much, generally oh. speaking. Because, a, well, a raven in the loosest sense can be thought of as any large-bodied black corvid. And that's okay. why... Oftentimes you'll find people, particularly those from a different country to us, will refer to a bird such as a crow as a raven, or they'll refer to ravens as crows. That there's a little bit of um, kind of layman's confusion in the terms. The actual term raven can be applied to birds across multiple taxonomic groups within the genus. Um, so there is a, quite a bit of confusion. But today, just to be clear, we're talking about what we would call the common raven, which is, of course, Corvus corax, one of the most intelligent birds and a fantastically beautiful bird too, I think. Agree. One of my favourite birds to find in Britain. Mm. Um, we're quite lucky. I'll go into their, their range and their habitat a bit in a bit. But generally speaking, when you think of ravens in the UK... Most people will tell you they live in, at the Tower of London or they live kind of the northern reaches of, of the British Isles. Yeah, but the north. We are... That would not have anything to do with Game of Thrones, making it out <laughs> like that. Game of Thrones. The Game only of Thrones. way of communicating in the north. <laughs> the snowy wastes of the north. I've gone Geordie, but you know. Yeah, it's Geordie. Yeah. <laughs> you know nothing, John Snow. <laughs> <laughs> One thing that's clear, our accents are terrible. We butchered accents today. <laughs> <laughs> um, I can't even remember where it was. <laughs> uh, our our I mean, postal okay. service is based purely in the north on ravens. On ravens, yeah. Well, I, that's what I was about to say. Like, you generally tend to figure them from the northern reaches of, of the UK or from, uh, like, say, Tower of London. But we're quite lucky here because literally on on our doorsteps particularly for me and drew we have quite a few ravens about and it's yep. just wonderful to hear them and see them hey we even about. hear them we even hear them over here and i'm on the edge of yeah, the town so that's brilliant the, the more the merrier when it comes to ravens i think to go into their naming this is one of our favorite things on the podcast when things um when when the two parts of the scientific name mean the same thing yeah because 
Corvus is Latin and Corax is Greek, and both of them mean raven. Um, we enjoy those. We do. Um, the old English word raven has links to Old Norse, in which the bird is called Hrathen, and Old High Germanic, where we find it called um, Hraben. You can kind of hear that, that these words are related. Uh, the H in these is softer. Both of these descend from the, the proto-Germanic word Krabanus, which sounds much more Lord of the Rings. Krabane, uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, lastly, with regards to naming, do either of you guys know what the collective noun for a group of ravens is? Uh, oh, yeah. yeah, I do. Murder. It's not murder, is it? Or is no, it? Because it's not murder. I That's get crazy. It's a murder. I thought crows, it was a murder, but it's a murder of okay, crows. It's, it's a conspiracy. Well done. You get, <laughs> is, you is get half a point. You get you half a point because there's, there's two answers. Okay. Go on. I just want to make known that I hate collective, <laughs> collective terms around us. <laughs> it just seems that we've pulled them all out of our backsides. It just makes... I don't know. There's a lot of them make no the, sense. There's nothing wrong with a bale of tortoises. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> what? That's, so, do you not buy your tortoises by the bale? Uh, yeah, I think one of the worst ones because it reeks of kind of British aristocracy is when we call lions a pride. I'm mm. really sorry, James Welch. <laughs> it's really sorry. I love lions, but I don't like the collective noun for them. Um, well, yeah, I say Drew, you've got half a point because there's actually two collective nouns oh. conspiracy is one of them, and an unkindness is another okay. one. Ah, yeah. I've heard that Which one I, before. I yeah. think that's a little bit unkind in itself, really. Again, I think someone just pulled that out of their ass. Pretty much. I would, I would certainly agree with that. So the common raven, which henceforth I'm just going to simply refer to as, as raven because that's what it is to us. Uh, it's the largest member of the corvid family and one of the heaviest passerine bird species that there are. It's a reassuringly easy animal to describe, but that also makes it frustratingly difficult to ID on the move. But you'll find that people in general, the general public, will confuse them at a distance, especially when they're flying and sort of confuse them for crows and stuff. But essentially, they grow to a, a size of about 60 to 68 centimetres with a wingspan of 120 to 150 centimetres. So this is a big bird. And they weigh about 800 uh, grams to about 1.5 kilograms. The colder the habitat, the larger the specimens tend to be. The closest corvid in size to the raven is the thick-billed raven of Africa, uh, which I'm sure we would cover in the future. In fact, I think we probably should because it's an interesting animal in its own right. Have you guys seen the thick-billed raven? I'm not that familiar with him, I have to admit. No. If you imagine like yep. our raven, which instantly makes bill. it cool. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's what I thought. I was thinking it's just an unusually thick bill. I know birds are dinosaurs, but I'm going to use dinosaur in a different sense. It's got a very dinosaur-like kind of crest along the top of its bill. Okay. Google that right now because, like, pictures, because they look really, I, I think they look absolutely awesome. Anyway, it's black from the tip of its beak and tail to the talons on its, on its feet. A deep black with a really quite stunning iridescent hue that makes them quite beautiful and yet very ominous to behold. Uh, and that's probably what kind of has given them the mythical reputation that they've got, which we'll get into in a bit. Now, there are currently eight subspecies recognised across the Northern Hemisphere, but they vary uh, very little in appearance. 
That being said, recent studies show that there are significant genetic differences between populations. The best markers for ID are essentially the elongated throat feathers that kind of give it like a beard-like appearance, the more robust looking beak, it certainly looks like it could do some damage, and that in flight they appear like a buzzard-sized bird with a diamond-shaped tail. Mm-hmm. In fact, on the subject of buzzards, have you guys ever noticed the difference uh, in kind of interspecies behaviour between certain species of corvid and the common buzzards? Well, as in, uh, like, the corvids will often harass buzzards. Yeah. Ravens are, uh, they're actually bigger than buzzards, aren't they? The wingspan's bigger. Yeah. Uh-huh. Which I've sort of gives, more... gives people a perspective of the size of them. Sorry, go on. I was going to say, I've seen more ravens being attacked by smaller birds sometimes than buzzards. But mm. yeah, just, you know, they, they're just both as, as large and impressive. I'm not sure other. I've ever seen a raven harass a buzzard, actually. Plenty of crows oh, no. harassing them. No. That is what is I that? was... That's what I was driving at, because whilst other species of corvid will literally mob birds of prey, in particular common buzzards around here, to usher them out of out of their territory, mm. um, out of their aerospace, shall we say. Ravens, <laughs> on the other hand, are really interesting because they know they've got the confidence in their size and their ability. They know they don't need to harass them. Mm-hmm. They will fly up and they will, they'll be on either side of them and they will escort them. Out of the area. Out of the area. The three birds, well, one one or two ravens with the buzzard, and they'll just glide out of the territory, and then the ravens will come back. It's really cool. Like the difference in behavior between the smaller corvids and then these huge ravens. And like Drew just said, they uh that they're bigger than the buzzards in a lot of cases. Yeah, you could say it's a bit more passive aggressive, isn't it? (laughs) Yeah, or a little bit more follow you. Or co- yeah, cocksure. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. They, yes. they, but they escort them out in relative peace because they, they just know like what are you gonna do, buzzard? Yeah. Um, yeah. I think you want to go this way, don't you? Yeah. <laughs> you better agree. Yeah. Come on, then. It's, it's curtains for you if you come back. <laughs> anyway, another good identifier for these guys is uh is that there is their flight pattern itself. It's a good marker. It involves far less flappiness than their crow cousins. It's literally like watching a big black buzzard. And lastly, their call is a deep croak as opposed to the core of other species. So yeah. I'm going to embarrass myself here, but I'm going to try and do an impersonation. All right. we, we, can all do we, can, we can all do one. We can all do one. I always okay. thought of it more of a gonk. I'd say cronk. Mm. Yeah. But yeah, go on now. Okay, hold on. Uh, let me just... Uh, World so, first here. Mute yourself and practice. <laughs> <laughs> so impersonation of a raven probably not very good but hopefully it gives you an idea it's a bit more of a deep croak so, mm. oh 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 yeah <laughs> i mean that was glorious out of That's out so of five beautiful. guys out of five uh I'll, I'll definitely give you some yeah 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 you can certainly have some points three That's three <laughs> i'm happy with three i'm happy with three drew your turn Hold on, let me let me also do a quick practice as well. Yeah. Oh, oh, oh. Hang on. That was that was a bit better, I think. What you can hear, listeners, is oh, oh, oh. I'll try not to listen to you, but also just really concentrate. Oh, oh. Yeah, so oh, 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 oh. I'm just gonna go straight into it. I'm I'm go not even it. gonna take the time to practice. Oh, he's that um, good. Um. Oh, oh, hello. He's he's rolling Absolutely. his he's rolling his arms. Yeah, yeah. 
It's because I'm part raven. <laughs> oh, those are both very good. I'm going to give you both four. Oh, okay. Oh, it's very diplomatic. I feel guilty it's now. Very, raven very diplomatic. <laughs> I think you guys have joined first place with a four. I'm really happy with that. I'm actually really proud of you guys. Well done. Oh, thank you. That's, you know. <laughs> okay. They better be. They deserve good content, and I feel like they got good content. <laughs> this is what you asked for. Yeah. You asked for Raven impressions. You got yeah. Raven impressions. Maybe that should become like, let us know if you want this to be a staple of our creature features that we will have to do an impersonation of Mark each other out of five. I'm down with it. It's very hard to do when it's like a slow worm. Yeah, or a Scalidosaurus. Well, <laughs> I, I was going to say Tyrannosaurus Rex. Next, when we do Tyrannosaurus Rex, we will practice our quack. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> like a whistling duck. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think it would be great. I think it would be great if the T-Rex did T-Rex. Boom, 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 boom. Woohoo. Now, if he's going to be like any duck, it's got to be an Ida. Mm. Oh. Oh. Moving swiftly onwards. We're constantly trying to develop uh, for the betterment of our listeners' entertainment. And our own. <laughs> anyway, common ravens first appear in the old world. So that's like Europe and, and Asia. This is our area of the world, really. In fact, they had to cross the, the Bering Land Bridge in order to enter into North America. Now, recent studies have determined that there are two distinct clades of raven. You've got the California clade, which is found in southwestern USA. These are most closely related to the Chihuahua raven. Um, that paints a weird I picture. I can't, yeah, I know that. I know Chihuahua, like what it really means, but it's I can't help region, but picture yeah. like a pygmy raven with a bad attitude yeah um i shouldn't say that as a dog trainer but there you go and then you've got the holarctic uh clade and these guys are found across the the rest of the northern hemisphere and they're much more closely related to the pied crow which again is another beautiful bird uh, that one i have worked with you have Mm. nice a lovely bird they they look beautiful. Uh, again, like I say, a species that we should probably consider for a creature feature sometime. The studies have indicated that the two clades began to diverge around two million years ago, and we think this occurred due to the species settling in California before the world entered into a glacial period that separated them uh, from their European and Asian cousins. And then about one million years ago, these colonizers then gave rise to the Chihuahua raven, and we think further migrations were then made by the Holarctic clade, hence why the two clades can both be found in, on the North American continent, but there's a bit of a separation. The interesting thing about these two clades is that they show no restrictions on gene flow between them. So whilst genetically distinct, they can and do breed, which puts the process of speciation into something of a reverse gear. There is a further population of isolated common ravens on the Canary Islands. And these, again, are genetically distinct from all others, though it's thought they may be closely related to the North African population, which is is a population that wasn't part of that study um, that discovered all this. Now, across that range of pretty much the entire Northern Hemisphere, uh, the raven has adapted to thrive as a generalist in terms of climate preference. This has 
essentially allowed them to enjoy a far wider distribution than any other member of its genus. And they can be found in temperate forests. They can be found in the Arctic, like the tundras and stuff. They can be found in deserts, uh, mountainous regions, the coastal areas, and even the Pacific islands. But generally they do have a little bit of a bias because they prefer wooded locales with areas of open land or coastal regions. Um, and they particularly like to build nesting sites along sea cliffs due to the easy access to water and a large variety of feeding options. In fact, kind of related to that, they do tend to prefer contoured landscapes with stable conditions. Now, ravens socially are quite an interesting animal. Uh, they will often flock together when they're young. And whilst as adults, they can be quick to scrap amongst themselves. They are somewhat gregarious and they definitely take advantage of enjoying a certain safety and strength in numbers, but they are far more social when they're younger. Juveniles are sexually mature from a young age, but they don't bond until they're about three to four years old. And courtship involves an incredible aerial display and holding demonstrations that challenge their intelligence and ability to provide. Once paired, the ravens will then need to find and hold their own territory before the nesting can begin. Now, once they've done this, they'll select a nest site that is a socially acceptable distance away from other ravens that are using the locale because they're a bit odd in that they like their own space, but they're kind of social at the same time. The nest itself will be built on a tree or a cliff face or occasionally on a man-made structure. And it takes the form of, of a deep bowl of twigs, roots, mud and fur that has just been collected together. And the pair will mate for life um, and they'll return to this nest site for, for every breeding if conditions are good and, and they can go back to it i'm kind of thinking more along the lines of where humans haven't put nets up to stop birds getting to these nest sites that never happens. anyway no it never happens of course it never happens no of um, course not <laughs> anyway clutches are laid around february to april depending on the temperature of the region and then that region's climate this however is different in pakistan where they lay in in december there are usually three to seven pale blue green eggs with brown speckles or blotching per clutch. And these will be incubated over the course of 18 to 21 days only by the female. Um, the male takes no part in the incubation process. However, he will crouch over them to shelter them, but it, he's not actually incubating them. So after he, about- he won't, he won't physically come into contact. No, no, he's like, no, because that would be woke. Yes, yeah. it would be too woke as a dad. That would, that would be would... too woke, you know. It's Don't not... be needing no woke no, birds no. now. No, no, no. no. it would be as woke as that bloody tyrannosaur chasing his young off of a carcass. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Anyway, after 35 to 42 days, the chicks fledge and then stay with their parents being fed by both mum and dad for a further six months. Do you guys have any idea how long ravens can live? It's about 30-odd years, isn't it? 40 even, I think. It's, that's not a bad estimate, really. Uh, so they reckon, yeah, not bad. They reckon ravens can live for 23 years in the wild, but that it almost doubles when in captivity. Now, these guys are extremely opportunistic in terms of diet. Uh, they have an omnivorous diet. They can basically have their fill of a wide variety of tasty morsels. In colder climes, they are known to hunt more, particularly on rodents. However, in other regions, they rely on their strong beak for scavenging food from carcasses and also from the smaller organisms that are accepting the bounties of this good carrion. With larger carrion, however, they can't quite get through the hide and must wait for the larger carnivores to turn up and do the heavy lifting. 
these are examples um, where ravens have acted as collector parasites, summoning wolves and bears to the location of a dead animal and allowing the larger predators to get started so that they can enjoy the rest. And this is actually well documented. And if you were interested, which I hope you are, you can go onto YouTube and you can actually find ravens summoning wolves and bears uh, to an area. In fact, there's the odd story, anecdotal uh, as far as I'm aware, of ravens, bears and wolves acting almost in communion over a hunt and a kill and what is left of it at the end. Mm. Anyway, ravens will also eat afterbirth, insects, amphibians, reptiles, birds, eggs. In fact, this was really interesting. They are listed as one of the primary threats to Californian condor nests um, mm. because they'll eat the condor eggs. They'll also eat berries, fruits, acorns, cereal, grains, buds, and human food waste. Now, the reason why... I'm, I'm going to circle back to Californian condors in a minute because it is interesting the relationship they have with them. Anyway, I, I find it interesting that you started with afterbirth. Yeah, <laughs> so that's their main. <laughs> this is what we prefer. Also, I think it is something that they if we do. can't get a condor. Should there then, not be you know, some afterbirth around? It, we'll it's also... something of a raven delicacy, I guess. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, ravens will also store surplus food which shows a, uh, an element of planning for the future. I've got too much afterbirth. <laughs> I need to store it. Yeah. Uh, not only will they store their own surplus food, but they'll even raid the stash of other animals and hide their plunder from other ravens, which is really... I mean, it's, the forethought that goes into that yeah. is really, really quite clever. As a food item themselves, however, owing to their size and social behaviour, the adult raven has very few predators. Their eggs, on the other hand, are a different story altogether, with owls, martins and eagles all taking the opportunity to accept the nutritious mouthfuls. That being said, the ravens are so fantastic at nest defence and at attacking nest raiders that their chasing off of golden eagles has actually aided the Californian condors that I mentioned the ravens themselves were predating upon. The ravens will predate on Californian condor eggs, but by chasing off the eagles from getting their eggs, not tolerating them in their territory whatsoever they actually keep the eagles away from the california condor nest too uh, which is a really interesting kind of relationship going on there um the juveniles the juvenile ravens that is, they are particularly at risk from predation from birds of prey such as owls hawks falcons and, and eagles and occasionally a lucky um, mammal might come their way uh, lynx coyote and cougar are all known to pick off an unlucky raven from the nest site, but it's it's not common, but it is worth knowing. Did mention about their intelligence. We all are aware that they're good mimics. It's important to actually point that out accurately. They're not, they don't speak, they don't talk, yeah. they mimic, they don't understand the conversation as such. They're just mimicking, they learn what response is the right response because of the way you train them and stuff. Uh, but they're very good mimics. And I think it goes without saying that they are ridiculously intelligent animals. Yeah. Their brain size is the largest of any species. In particular, the hyperpallium is large for a bird species. I've looked into this, and if I've understood it correctly, the hyperpallium is essentially the equivalent of the visual cortex found in mammals, and it gives birds the cracking visual perception that they have. Ravens also demonstrate especially good problem-solving skills, and like I say, imitation, and also insight. 
It is also theorised that ravens can communicate about an object that is distant from themselves, not just in space, but in time as well. Uh, so this is a cognitive ability known as linguistic displacement. And an example of this is that uh, a single ravens that will go back to the flock can communicate the location of a guarded food source to its flock. So the next day, the flock will descend upon the mated pair of ravens and oust them from the resource which is fantastic planning and plotting. And again, very Game of Thrones. Um, it is, yeah, yeah. John and Sally have got some afterbirth, guys. Yeah. We, need to, so to, we need to get in on Get the that. boys together. Tomorrow yeah. we're going down there. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so in testing the bird's capacity to plan for the future, researchers taught five ravens that the insertion of a stick into a tube originating from a box would lead to the release of a food item. They then took this box and the tool away. An hour later, they were given a choice of tools. A further 15 minutes later, they had the box returned to them. The ravens selected the correct tool and perfectly performed the task 80% of the time. This experiment was repeated with a 17-hour delay this time, um, and the birds were successful 90% of the time. This is a higher success rate than primates, including four-year-old human children. I, I don't think I can say it better than ridiculously intelligent uh, the researchers also set up experiments for bartering, showing the birds have a trade of tokens meant that they'd get their favourite food item at a later time. And they've succeeded in doing this 90% of the time as well. They also worked out that what was an unfair deal, as if they'd been cheated, uh, which is something that, that is, it, you can see these experiments with ravens and chimpanzees, fascinating stuff. That's something um, that politicians haven't learned yet. <laughs> yeah, the, the ravens have learned that much quicker than they did um, be fair one smarter than the other um, in a final test to challenge their perception of uh, of delayed gratification uh, which is something that our current generations are not good at it's all wow. gratification now There's isn't it shame <laughs> um, the ravens were offered a choice of a lower value feed item in that moment or a token that could be traded later for a higher value food item. In this experiment, humans show a sense of decreased value in the future, whereas the ravens displayed much more patience. Selecting the tool or token that would grant the high value reward more than 70% of the time, uh, mm. which again is really impressive. The ability to forward think and plan for the future like that. Yeah. And there are plentiful examples of ravens behaving in varied and obscure problem-solving ways in the world too. One example, uh, one of my favourite examples actually, is differentiating between different phases of our traffic light systems. Oh, in um, Japan. Yeah. yeah. So they would hang out on the top of the traffic lights and they'll drop nuts as the red-amber combo comes up, allowing the vehicles to drive over them during the green phase and then they'll collect the now de-shelled treats when the light goes red again. I think in the video, you actually see people on the, the, the zebra crossing behind them, crossing the road, and these ravens are collecting all these the nuts from inside their shells. It's, inc it's I, absolutely incredible. I love that video. Mm. I've also already alluded to the raiding of, of food caches belong to other animals, in particular Arctic foxes. And also another thing I've already alluded to is calling in allies, whether they be the flock of ravens themselves or other larger predators like the wolves and the bears. Mm -hmm. um, to, or the Avengers. Or the Avengers. That, that, that is also possible. 
uh, to aid in, uh, in accessing food. They are also known to bluff when they realize they are being watched. They'll change their behavior. Uh, for example, they'll start pretending to make stores away from where the genuine store is. They'll even pretend to be like ridiculously interested in absolutely nothing. So mm. the spies are more attracted to the nothing than they are to the genuine stash of food that they've set aside. Yeah. Um, incidentally, their behavioral repertoire suggests that they choose both to alert others to a, to a feed source, as well as deliberately distract them from one, depending on which behavior helps their purpose more in that moment, which again, the social behaviors and the, the planning behaviors of that just phenomenal. I could honestly watch Raven videos for days on end. Uh, they are fantastic animals, uh, which kind of, in a roundabout way, how intelligent they are and comparisons being drawn to like human children and such. Yeah, actually, and, and also how, inte- how awe-inspiring their intelligence is. Uh, it leads us really nicely onto how they've impacted us. Mm. And it is quite substantial. I think there are few religions, faiths and cultures across the Northern Hemisphere that have not been in some way significantly touched by the existence of the raven. And some of the stories about them are fantastical and many of them are beautiful. And that's what I kind of want to talk about now. And Mm -hmm. this is going to be a little bit longer than my normal kind of delving into folklore and mythology of doing creature features. Because just because of how closely uh, linked our existence to them is in in terms of, shall we say, spiritual significance? Um, I think that's probably the best way to put it. So across their range... Their black plumage and scavenger-like tendencies have been held symbolic of death, evil, bad omens, but they're not always the harbingers of bad tidings. So we'll start off in Bryn, because that's where we are. We actually have ravens appearing a lot in our, in our folklore. So we'll start off with uh, the Welsh god, Bran, the blessed. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, well, that would be why ravens in Welsh is Sigvran. Yes, yes. It's also why Bran is called Bran and... What are you telling me? Just basically ripped off other things. Well, I mean, (laughs) I I don't think it's necessarily ripping something off if you look into the meaning of the word and go, yeah, actually, that fits quite well. Also, (laughs) it's credit where credit's due. It's very difficult for authors, I think, uh, and filmmakers to come up with something that is truly original, especially when you have things as spectacular as Lord of the Rings, Michael Crichton's Jurassic Park. Star Wars, and I'm not saying that because I'm biased because I like those things, but Godfather, these things are so artistically impactful in every sense that it, it's very difficult once you have a King Arthur, once you have a Luke Skywalker or a uh, Aragorn, it's really difficult to write a hero again without it taking notes from that. And once you write a story that contains that kind of hero in it, it's, it's very difficult to... I'm going off on a tangent, but I, mm. I would give, I don't think George R. R. Martin is the best author in the world, but credit where credit's due, his stuff is good. Unlike if you compare it to J.K. Rowling, which is basically Lord of, soft Lord of the Rings in, in a school in, in England. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, they've, um, all, they've all come from Beowulf and that sort of classic, um, yes, exactly. classic stories that people told each other of that hero's journey. It's that sort of well, that hero's journey has pretty much remained the same since the dawn of time, I imagine. Everybody holds Tolkien up on a, on a pedestal for his originality, but mm. he himself will tell you that all of Lord of the Rings can be found in Norse mythology, 
like Beowulf and, and that. Sorry, Germanic. I should say Germanic because it's Norse, Swedish, uh, so on and so Danish, so on and so forth. Mm. So sorry, guys, we got really off on a on a tangent <laughs> there. But um, so yeah, the Welsh god Bran the Blessed, he was the guardian of the British Isles, and his symbolic animal or his totem was the raven. And his name actually means raven in Welsh. And he ordered his <laughs> in the grand tradition of great gods sacrificing themselves in some way shape or form uh he ordered his own decapitation after which he could still share his wisdom and foresight with the world bran's head was then buried at the site of where the tower of london now stands which has spawned its own raven-based superstition in that should the ravens leave the tower of london britain and its monarchy will fall as a result the resident ravens have their wings clipped because <laughs> you know not taking any chances <laughs> no no, not taking any chance at all. Anyway, Scotland has many locations named after this species. Here we go with Aaron's butchered word of the week. Fifth each is Gaelic for raven, and it appears in many place names. They also tell of a hag named Kaylee, uh, who would disguise herself as a raven to eat the corpses of men. Another guardian of Britain is, of course, King Arthur. Uh, the Cornish actually rebuke the death of their legendary king, and instead they believe he turned into a raven. The Irish believed that their goddess of war, Morrigan, uh, would spectate battlefields disguised as a raven. Not the last time you'll hear about ravens being drawn to battles and war gods. In Sweden, they are seen as spirits of murdered people. Um, in Germany, they're considered spirits of the damned. In the Islamic culture, it is the raven that teaches Cain how to bury Abel after he murdered him. And then we get into some of my favourites now, uh, because in ancient Greece, they're associated with Apollo, the sun god. Now, he's also the god of prophecy. Now, they were considered bad omens in ancient Greece, and they were also the messengers of the gods to the mortal realm. Now, Apollo had a white raven who behaved essentially as his spy, it's not the last time you're going to hear of ravens as a spy here. And he sent the bird to watch over Coronis, who was his lover. Uh, when the bird revealed um, information that Coronis had been unfaithful to Apollo, Apollo scorched the bird in his rage and he turned his white plumage uh, black. And this is why, according to ancient Greece, this is why ravens today are black. Is that another example of the Greek gods not focusing their efforts on the actual problem and instead focusing yes. on <laughs> blaming something else? Either the messenger Absolutely. or just someone else. Absolutely. That's, yeah. Very much well, well worded. Yeah. Or do shoot the messenger in this case. Well, yeah. yeah. Um, anyway, we have Apollo to thank uh, for the raven looking as beautiful as it does today. Thanks, so. Apollo. <laughs> in Norway, Ravens are particularly important. So one of Woden's many names is, of course, Hrafnagud, which means the raven god. This is because he has two pet ravens, Hugin, which means fort, and Munin, meaning memory. And uh, Grimnir gave these two the ability to speak. And they would basically fly around, circumnavigate Midgard every day, acting as Odin's spies before returning to Valhall, where they would tell Wotan of uh, their observations. The Allfather admits that he fears the day that Hugin doesn't return to him, but even more so Munin, which is really deep 
when you actually look into the meaning of their names because he's suggesting that he fears losing the ability to think but he fears more losing his memory mm. it's also said that Gladawar sends Hugin to visit the hanged and sends Munin to visit the slain and this demonstrates his respect for all of the dead but his particular almost self-serving interest in the slain who will who will fill the great hall of Valhall and prepare for Ragnarok um, now I'll admit something and I don't know if you, you must have noticed I would have thought I extended that the Norwegian myths a yeah. little bit unnecessarily just to see how many variations of Wednesday's name I could squeeze into a creature feature <laughs> mm. um, yes I didn't I did notice how you started actually with Woden and I thought oh, that's, quite unlike, that's quite unlike Aaron because he's uh, he hates the Saxons yeah, I, I don't hate the Saxons not as much as I hate the Romans Flemming right. <laughs> Romans what they ever done for us yeah Anyway, I like. I mean, the last one's a cheat because it's come from um, American Gods, a TV show on on Amazon. Uh, don't at me. I don't give a crap. Um, <laughs> and then finally, uh, again, equally interesting to Norse mythology and Greek mythology is the Pacific Northwest, where the oh god, where I really hope that I'm not about to insult so many different people by butchering their names. But this is an area where the Simicians, the Haders, the Hilsuks, Tlingits, Kwakwakawak, Coast Salish, and Koyukans and Inuit held sway. I think that was fairly well done. I mean, I mean we're no judges, really, are we? We have no My idea. My brain just melted doing that. Held sway. Okay, right. <laughs> now, I will, I'm going to preface this with a, a little bit of a disclaimer public service announcement because i'm very aware of cultural sensitivities but between each group the peoples of of these nations they have slightly different versions of these beliefs from one another they're very very similar but very very different and unique um and as much as i would love to delve into that the scope of the podcast just isn't large enough to go into specifics and the finer details so this will as respectfully as possible have to be a bit of a generalization by necessity and i'm really sorry for that i don't want to i, I think that, one. i think that was a wonderful disclaimer so okay here it goes the generalization they believed that the raven was the creator of the planet and one of the related myths is that it basically tells of how the raven uh, flew away from the bird world or the spirit world and uh, dropped a rock, a great rock into the ocean that used tidal carrion. Um, and this created the sea that all of us live on now. But the pe these people of the Pacific Northwest, they also believed him to be a bit of a trickster god. And one of my favorite stories about the raven from the Pacific Northwest is, is a myth that tells of how when the um, great spirit was giving out gifts to all the species on earth, he gave to seagull a box that contained all the light of the universe. The seagull was a selfish animal, so he, he keeps the box from the world, despite pleas from his fellow animals to share his, his wealth as they were sharing theirs. Um, in desperation, the animals then petitioned to Raven, uh, who tried persuasion, flattery, begging, demanding, and even threats. And Did he try worked. offering him some chippies? <laughs> I don't believe fish and chips existed in, in quite the same, shall we say, quality as the Wulukun Friar <laughs> does nowadays. <laughs> Shout out to the Wulukun Friar, the best fish and chips in the world. 
anyway, nothing worked. Uh, Seagull was just too selfish. So one day Raven took a thorn and drove it deep into Seagull's foot. He pushed it deeper and deeper until the pain caused Seagull to relinquish his grip on the box, which Raven then took and opened. Uh, and out of the box fell the sun, the moon, the stars, and so light was brought into the universe. I think that's quite a, a cool myth. Anyway, there are quite honestly thousands of myths that I could go over from all over the Raven's range, and they're all equally fascinating cultural stories that deserve preservation um, just as much as the bird itself does. Uh, these are just a small few sample that I that I really enjoyed, and there ends the creature feature on Corvus Corax, the common raven, one of the most intelligent birds and one of the largest pessarine birds. Not enough can be said about its intelligence. No, I, I no. fully agree. Yeah. A fantastic um, species. Pop culture really references, actually, before we go, the Corvus Corax is the bird that sits on the shoulder of, I think he's an animal trafficker or a, a zoo owner or safari owner in um, Ace Ventura when nature calls. Oh, okay. <laughs> Yeah, his name's Tinky. His name's Tinky because he says, "Say hello, Tinky." Hello. Oh. Sounds very like a parrot. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, he does actually. I never, never thought of that. Mm. And also, little Easter egg: whenever Thor is in a Marvel movie or, or Loki, at some point you will see two ravens, and it is Odin's spies, Hugo and Nina. Uh, really? That's interesting. Yeah. I've noticed that. Yeah, Thor, Avengers. If I remember correctly, even the series Loki features Huguen and Munin at some point. Mm. If Interesting. I remember correctly. It's also powerful imagery in some of the TV shows, um, like The Last Kingdom, um, yeah. and particularly in, in Vikings, which played a little bit more into like mythology of the gods. I think Odin appears at least three times in that in that series. But yeah. There you go. There's ravens in a not in so much in a nutshell, but maybe in a, a coconut husk. I mean, it, it's <laughs> certainly a, in a nutshell compared to what you could say. Yeah. Well, we we could we could talk for hours. And for those of you listening who think oh, some of these episodes are getting a little bit long, strap themselves in because we're going to keep going on uh, ravens for another another two hours at least. <laughs> so we'll lock the doors. <laughs> right. Well, flying off into the distance, there goes our creature feature, our enhanced creature feature it's got mythology in it it had had words of the week it had all sorts it even had us doing impressions so we're now going to move on from that uh into our questions for the week bing you've got mail Ooh, it's an email right so questions wise we've had some emails coming in we've got some new ones we've got some old ones that we're tackling as well we're working our way through the mountain of uh, of emails which have taken up the corner of over there of the uh, of the cupboard yes um, well, we're glad to have it though but well, keep yeah. sending them in please yes but um erin what is our first question that we've got this week question is why didn't erin prepare and keep the screen open so that we could read from it straight away oh, that is a and... that is a very poignant question actually very relevant <laughs> question <laughs> the question is it comes from paula tregale uh, who asks what animal could you watch endlessly? Mm. Um, and Great I would question. actually like to hear Gareth's suggestion first. I think his would be interesting. Hmm. There's a few species that I think I could watch endlessly. Ants yep. would probably be one of them. And uh, aquariums of fish. I haven't got any at the moment, but I used to have both lots of things. I used to have an ant form aquarium, and I used to have 
various different aquariums with various different species of fish. One being in the front room of when I was a child in the house. And I can remember just sitting there watching that instead of watching the TV, because you could just watch the sort of small community of animals going about their lives. There's something weirdly relaxing about it as well. The same with ants. Mm. You can you know pick an individual ant, watch what that one's doing as it comes back. In fact, I always quite like to watch leafcutter ants if I go to a, a zoo and they've got them stand there and watch there for a bit. They're also one of those animals that if you look at sort of patterns of where people spend a lot of time, that is weirdly one of the ones that people will spend an awful lot of time watching, Mm. Um, which is odd because most people don't tend to focus on watching insects that much when they go to a zoo. They tend to look for, you know, the big stuff. Yeah. Yeah. That'd be what I would go with. I, when I read the question, I had a good answer, but this seems to have, drawn a blank now but I, I have to say that I agree with Gareth in in terms of kind of like household animals that you might have at home to watch I think you could do a lot worse than than fish tanks I think they're they're just so relaxing to watch and there's always something going on people just think they listlessly swim up and down and uh but they don't there's a lot of activities a whole hive of activity going on a lot of foraging, a lot of social dynamics, a lot of Game of Thrones-esque politics. Oh, um, <laughs> especially that's, a third, you... that's a third mention of that this week. <laughs> yeah, if you've got like, um, what's the one I used to have? So I had, I had a few, in fact, not, not one that I had personally, but um, one that I did kind of have for a little while was red-tailed black sharks and uh and silver sharks which essentially they get to a certain size and then they become they basically become the palpatine of of the tank they they are they just become the senate (laughs) so yeah they would be my kind of household animal to watch all day other than that i like Mm -hmm. watching red kite when i lucky enough to see them Mm -hmm. um in the animals i've worked with in zoos i could honestly watch tigers all day they Um, don't do a huge amount though uh, they don't but there's usually something to watch, even if you've got them on the night camera as well. Really interesting, I think. And also, it's not just about them being interesting. It's also the fact that I, I like them so much. I just couldn't quite happily... Like uh, to creep them out by staring at them. Enter a relaxed state just watching them for a while. Mm. <laughs> I think there's a lot to be said, actually, about just watching your household animals and really intently... Given the time of day to just figure out what the hell are you doing? What is going on? This is a, it's a rare glimpse into animals, I think, actually having pets and, and just seeing what creatures get up to when, uh, when they think we're not watching. And you wouldn't get to do that in the wild quite a lot of the time. But anyway, and to actual wild animals um, or even captive ones, I quite like, we were discussing them pretty much for most of this episode today. I like intelligent birds. I like watching them get up to mischief. And messing about. I quite like Turicos. I like watching them bounce around because they're very active. And as much as we sort of belittle people who don't really spend time looking at animals that aren't really doing all much or animals that do sort of uh, like it, like a lot of invertebrates that just sort of sit there and don't, people don't spend very much time looking at them or watching them. I do understand that if the animal's active and bouncing around, it is more interesting. But I also really like sitting by a pond. And if there are amphibians around, that's what I'm looking for. And I do like watching frogs and toads and newts sort of just going about their day, watching tadpoles moving around and around. I could sit there for hours and just watch tadpoles moving around. I'm quite happy doing that. 
to be honest, mate, you're a bit of an authority on household animals doing weird things because you're taught yes. us as a bit of a calciophile. <laughs> yes. Oh, there's your word of the week. Is that, oh, is, yeah. that, oh, is that a scientific term for shoe? It's a shoe lover. A shoe lover. Oh. <laughs> I didn't know that. That's good. There's that one thing one. I think we all missed, actually, that I think is worth adding to it's that. It's a bit as repetitive, well. though, I have to say, when he's caught because he does it for a long time. I get bored of it. Sorry, Gareth. Go on. He's just intent. Um, he is. Is watching Passionate. birds, uh, garden birds on a bird feeder. Yeah, that's true. That's that's always a good one. Um, yeah. That can be interesting to watch the social dynamic and who's in charge of that feeder and all the different ones that then come in and it all changes and everything. Yeah. Until, you know, a cat disturbs it all or a dog disturbs it all or whatever. But yeah, let's go yeah. from that question to uh, Drew's one. What have you got, Drew? Uh, yeah, so we got a question from Nattering Newt. Um, I do apologise we didn't get to this earlier, actually, because this is, I think, one of the first questions you you asked us. And um, uh, yeah, apologies, but we're, we've got to it now. So uh, they said they've just started listening. Probably been a little while now if they still are. I uh, hope you are. And they, uh, they said their favourite episodes are the New Year quiz. I think we all liked that. The pine tree one, Garrus Will and My Pine, the, the giant salamander, and the sperm whale. That's one from each of us, actually. So that's nice. Mm. Very diplomatic. It's, that's very diplomatic. It it very diplomatic. Very, yeah. I think they're I love episodes, democracy. So. <laughs> <laughs> so the first question was Will you release bloopers? Which I think I did actually answer on Twitter, but I'm going to answer here again as well, just so everyone else can sort of hear it. I am working on it. Uh, we've, <laughs> we've saved some kept them away kept them nice and safe within the cupboard and uh hopefully i can compile them together and it's it's i mean it'll be a mess of an episode basically but it's just going to be like <laughs> hey look, here's maybe here's utter us. garbage here's, just, here's <laughs> us just really messing up and uh saying it's some inc- released on april fools next year yeah saying some incredible faux pas i think in there as well um <laughs> uh, i'm one of them is particularly coming to my mind i don't know if you guys can remember when i mispronounce a website uh, but anyway, so <laughs> so yeah, I, I watch this space. Watch this space because they'll be coming. Um, they also said, "Oh, unless you never make mistakes." Oh no, God, dear God, this, oh, this is the power of editing for if, you. If you were part of this, you would uh, you'd lose your patience with us. Well, um, imagine how many times I had to try and pronounce the uh, the names of the Native American peoples in this episode alone. Yeah, uh, we had to leave them to it. <laughs> so, but the actual question that they have is what nature activities would you suggest for babies to five-year-olds mm. rock pulling rock pulling <laughs> have, have a look at mm. the intelligent tests that researchers have put ravens and chimpanzees and such through and um and have a go at that because uh, that can be quite a creative thing as well but yeah I, rock pulling i take my little one climbing scrambling bouldering over the uh, rocks on the beaches uh, and that the lower 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 uh, kind of cliff areas not on the cliffs themselves obviously and just go looking for rock pools my partner joins in with that we've failed to catch many well no that's let's be honest i've failed to catch many crabs to bring to her attention but i did get a, a rather large one that uh got to show her which was cool uh, also seen the little tiny baby fish and the different seaweeds and all that yeah mm. Mm. one's yeah. uh come to mind for me especially for very very like baby 
baby we're talking here there's not really much you can do other than just show them things because a lot of the times at a very very young age they they can't process you know what's going on or what they're seeing even Mm. so just laying out on the grass near some trees and having them look up at trees and that that can sometimes be a good way to start and i've found zoos and aquariums you you get to see the animals up close is a good way to inspire that um, I just recently went to an aquarium and now all my little one says is shark. He's absolutely enamored with sharks. And, and to be honest, it's brilliant because as a child, I was absolutely petrified of sharks, which I'm, I'll cover one day as to the exact reasoning. But needless to say, I didn't want him, you know, having that sort of issue. Hmm. I love sharks now. I mean, I, I basically forced myself to learn as much as possible as a, as a kid to break that fear of them. And now I, I absolutely love them. But oh. yeah, seeing a shark swim above your head in, you know, one of those aquariums where you, you go through the tunnel yeah. with them above you, that is an absolute mind blowing thing for like a, a two year old. So it, it's a really good thing for seeing stuff like that. It can be a little bit irritating, especially this time of the year, because if you go, you'll have loads of people pushing you out the way and everything. But you know, it's just, yeah, it's just the way it goes with that sort of thing. But yeah, Aaron's right. Just going out for walks and, mm-hmm. and going to these places, you know, they don't even necessarily need to get down or see, you know, like actually it'd be physically on the ground. Just seeing a lot of this stuff is what inspires them, that that's what's around them and that's what they can see. One thing that we've been very lucky is his, his grandparents have cows that live in the field next door to where they live. So he's seen cows from a very young age and gets to see them up close when they come over to the fence to have a look at what's going on in the garden. So it's... Funnily enough, we have a similar setup here with our daughter. She's grown up with cows right behind the house that come up to the fence line of our house. And there's a really cool Spanish song about a cow named Lola. If there are any Spanish listeners, it's, it's La Vaca Lola. Uh, my little girl loves that song. Uh, and because of that song and having the cows out the back, yeah, that, that's a very similar thing. Mm. But yeah, I, that, hear, that, I hear that song in my house quite a lot, actually, Aaron, or the humming of it as well, because that song has transferred onto my partner who keeps humming it and is trying <laughs> really? to learn Spanish. Yeah, genuinely. There's no getting away from kids' songs. It, it just happens. No. You know, I quite routinely hear myself uh, humming... A round of applause for the dinosaurs by Nick Cope. I quite often hear, uh, have my, find myself humming that every now and again. <laughs> a funny story: when when my sister-in-law lived with us for a bit, her little baby had just been born, and and was uh, they would watch this uh, baby shark. And I swore oh, that if I ever had kids, I would never allow baby shark in the house. However, as a result of her accidentally seeing that song. She is infatuated with sharks. My, my daughter now, she's infatuated with sharks. She absolutely loves them. So actually, as much as I hate the song, I have to kind of done some credit good. where credit's mm. due. She loves sharks, which I think is important because too many people hate them. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, there we go. Like I say, I don't think there's any spe- specific wrong answer when it comes to... Well, actually, there is wrong answers. Oh, <laughs> I just thought of 10. <laughs> don't go doing falconry whilst holding a two-year-old. Hope this or, bald eagle. Yeah. 
<laughs> or go swimming with sharks oh, with a you. toddler. You yeah. know. <laughs> also, probably don't go looking for grizzly bears. The, these are suggestions. You know, there are no yeah. within reason wrong sure. answers. Yeah, this is so. this is why people come to us for yeah. astute advice, Ch- uh, children's safety advice, <laughs> <laughs> handling of venomous snakes yeah. <laughs> with your toddler. Yeah, here's a deep pond. Have a little look around in it. I'm going to leave you for <laughs> half an hour. <laughs> uh, I'm not taking any responsibility. Don't do these things. Yeah, don't do this. Do the sen- sensible, safe things. Lie under a tree. Have a look at leaves. These sort of stuff. Anyway, <laughs> that uh, is it's all our questions for this week. Uh, and if you too, dear listener, uh, want to get in contact with us about what reckless ways we can endanger your children... <laughs> You can do so by sending us an email at the Nat History Cupboard at uh, gmail.com. You can also get in contact with us on uh, Twitter or on Facebook. We're also on Instagram as well, where we are posting up all our different bits and pieces, um, and on TikTok as well, where we are posting up videos and bits and pieces every now and again. I uh, I did absolutely love the little video I managed to get of a, um, a gecko the other day, which just perfectly timed so he looks at the camera it's it's by far my favorite video if you haven't checked out that that particular video it is on facebook and on tiktok as well so it's worth looking at just because it's it's only a couple of seconds long but i just love the look the gecko gives you and of course you can find us on our t-mill store as well where we are selling the t-shirts and hoodies and uh, yeah they come in a variety of different colors and i'm currently wearing my weather one which is uh, is absolutely lovely. I've not seen Gary um, outside of that t-shirt now. I don't. Think, I, I have actually. I have I actually worn it, it after like different days. I do take it off every now and again and <laughs> wash it, you know. <laughs> but it's just it's a very nice t-shirt. I appreciate good t-shirts, and this one is a good one. But if you um, you've liked what you've heard, remember you can uh, leave us a review, like, subscribe on whatever podcasting service you are listening to us on. But that just pretty much leaves me to say a big thank you uh, to my co-hosts, Drew. Big thank you to you. Thank you very much, Professor. Thank you very much, Aaron, for delving into the Raven. The Raven. I apologise. It was a bit on the longer side, and it wasn't. It wasn't like a funny story format. But I I hope it was enjoyable nonetheless. And and, well, and our new regional. Our new retooling of things, you know, it's uh, it's worked quite well. So a big thank you to you as well, Aaron, for getting in there as many Norse and uh, Odin names as is possible to fit I in. Uh, in I, one actually, thing. I never actually counted how many I got in there, by the way. Oh, well. Um, but just leaves me to say a big thank you to you at home for listening. And we will see you next time here in the Natural History Cupboard. Bye. Wait. Something of a large bodied black bird ourselves. That was natural, so natural.